0: If you had someone that you wanted to convince of the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, how would you go about doing it? Now, this someone, let's say they believe in God, they believe in the Bible at least parts of it. But they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah. They don't believe Jesus is the Savior of Israel, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world. How would you go about convincing someone that Jesus is the Son of God? Because Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, is arrested... He's brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. They would have met in the temple courts. The high priest would preside. And they brought Stephen and they accused Stephen of religious treason. Of selling God out. Blaspheming the name of God, because Stephen was a devoted follower of Jesus, not as a man, but as the Lord, the Son of God. And when Stephen is called in front of the Sanhedrin for his trial, the accusations and the charges are leathered, levied. And the high priest says to Stephen, what do you have to say to these charges? And here's Stephen's chance. Now, I ask you again, and I'll take a blob answer, blurb answer, not blob, no blobs, a blurb answer, just spurt it out. How would you go about convincing someone that Jesus is the Son of God? my my books you I love you Sandy uh, We can do better than that though Come on give me some more options Prophecies very good All right what else Evidence okay Testimony our calendar she watches Duck Dynasty You know that's Phil's big thing Phil Phil on Duck Dynasty uh uh the the dad was peppered one time by um, the, the producers of the show because Phil, at the prayer at the end of each episode always says in Jesus' name, that's the way they pray as a family, that's their prayer. And uh, the, it's often edited out of the show. And the, the producers asked Phil one time if he'd just quit praying in Jesus' name for the sake of the show. And Phil said, why? And the editors said, uh, because it could offend people. And 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 Phil said, why would it offend anybody how I and my family pray? And he said, well, there may be other people who don't believe in Jesus. He said, well, they may not believe in Jesus, but what year is it? And Phil's response, uh, the producer's response was, well, it's 2000. I don't know what year it was. He told me this story uh, in summer before this summer, so about a year ago. So 2012, 2013, whenever it may have been. And Phil said, 2013 what? said, A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. He said, everybody who writes the date is saying Jesus. They just don't realize it. Because we do our calendar by Him, I can pray through Him. So... Anyway, yes, we could do the calendar thing and Phil would be proud. Now, what how else? Stephen's speech. Oh, Bob. Oh. <laughs> but how would Stephen have done it? Here's what you do. You use the Bible. If someone believes in this book and doubts if Jesus is the Son of God, then let's go to the book and show that it's true. Now, Stephen is there. And Stephen is faced with this. And what does Stephen do? He uses the Bible. That's exactly what he does. So if Stephen does it, then uh, so can we. Now what I'd like to do and what actually consumes, if you're reading along in the context plan, what actually consumes the next, uh, a good bit of last week uh, and the next several weeks is is going through the Old Testament in support of what Stephen was doing. Stephen gives his speech in Acts chapter 7. Luke is recording it. Luke is covering about 50 years of history between Luke and Acts. Maybe a little more than that, about 58 years of history between Luke and Acts. 58 years in two short books. Actually, they're the longest books in the New Testament, but they're still relatively short for us. Fifty-eight years is a lot to cover. One entire chapter is dedicated to Stephen's speech. In that one, basically one entire chapter, not quite all of seven, but almost all of seven, in that entire chapter, Luke has condensed down. Stephen wouldn't have given a two-minute defense. Stephen probably spoke for hour plus. Stephen had a hearing opportunity. He had a chance to explain who Jesus was. He would not have given the Cliffs Note version. And so what we've done in the contextual readings is actually taken for several weeks the Old Testament passages that Stephen referred to And we're reading them to get the fuller understanding of what they have to say. So with that in mind, let's look carefully. In Acts chapter 6, the charges are levied against Stephen. And those charges are as follows. Stephen is accused of being blasphemous against Moses and God. And specifically, the witnesses say that Stephen spoke out against this holy place and the laws and the customs of Moses. Those were the charges levied against Stephen. Stephen doing it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ. Those are the charges. So if we look at those charges, let's look at the response. And I want to break it apart this Sunday for the readings that we had last week and the Friday before, Saturday before. Um, I want to break it apart and look at it in three different uh, points, three different ideas. First part of the response. God's story is always bigger than man's perception. If you see God at work in your life and you see God at work in your family or you see God at work in the world or you see God at work in in your friends at your workplace, at your school if you see the hand of God at work I want to give you what I believe is a total absolute truth. God's story is bigger than you see. I'm very limited by my ability to think. I'm able to think only as well as these gray cells fire in my brain. You can take two fists and put them together like this. That's the size of your brain. Some of you may be a little bit bigger. Some of you may be a little bit littler. Some of us, at half of it's rocks. Some of us may have a lot of air in there. But that's the size of your brain. And a bunch of it's dedicated to making sure you breathe. And your body works. Your conscious thoughts, not even that big. And 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 God made us, and He made us this way, and He made us able to understand Him to some degree. But we no more understand His plan in totality than we do His His uh, uh, His essence, His being. There is a humility that should come to all of us. And even as we grasp and understand God's story, we need to understand that it's bigger than we perceive. Now you may be thinking, why does he make a big deal out of that? If you had a chance to sit with my wife Becky... Becky, are you here? She's here somewhere. I know she's here. If you had a chance to sit with my wife Becky... Becky would be able to tell you about a conversation we had in high school. When we were in high school, I was arguing a biblical religious truth with Becky. And it's one where I was right and she was wrong. I had the Bible to support me. She had her ideas. And she said to me, You act like you know everything there is to know about the Bible. You could be wrong. And I looked at her with all the humility I could (laughs) and said, well, for these purposes, I do know all I need to know and I'm not wrong, which was about the most arrogant, pompous thing I could ever have said. And I will say over history, I've learned I was wrong about that very thing. But at the time, I really felt like I had a pretty good grasp of what God was doing. And you'd like to think with me up here teaching, that I'm going to tell you today, oh, I have a really good grasp of what God is doing. And depending upon how you look at it, I might be willing to say, well, you know... I, I I have a decent grasp of what I think God is doing in some way, but God's story is much bigger, and what he's about is much bigger than any of us, even corporately, if we pooled all of our brain power together. It's far beyond what we've got, and that's true even in our part of the story. God is at work in you and in me, doing things and planning things and, and, and maneuvering things in view of a much bigger cosmic tale than we can envision. And it's delightful to see Stephen start out with this. Because you look at those charges, we'll throw up the board for it. And, and, well, before we do, let's just Elmo for a second to make sure we're in t- uh, context. Acts chapter 6. Go to the end where the charges are. Acts chapter 6. Okay, Acts chapter 6. So, um, they pull Stephen away Uh, they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people. They stirred up the elders Ah. and the scribes. They came upon him, they seized him, they brought him before the council. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs Moses delivered to us. And the high priest says, chapter 7, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint. Acts chapter 7. Brothers and fathers. Hear me. Now, are they brothers because of Moses? Are they brothers because of Moses? No. Who makes them brothers? Abraham. Over 400 years before Moses. This is not a story about Moses. God's story is not about Moses and the customs and the law that Moses gave. God's story, even among those people gathered together there, was much bigger than that. Brothers and fathers, the story goes back to Genesis the way it's recounted by Stephen. And in Genesis chapter 12, we read about Father Abraham. And Father Abraham is called out of Ur to Haran in Mesopotamia, and then down to Israel's promised land. God called Abraham forth, and Abraham is the father. He is the father of everyone that is Jewish. And it is to Abraham, we read in Genesis chapter 12, that as God called him to the promised land, notice the call of God starts out coming to Abraham in Ur, think Babylon. Then Abraham goes up Mesopotamia. I should have put a map in there. Sorry, here we can do a map. Have map, we'll travel. So if this is the the Holy Land, looks kind of like a whoops. Okay. Have map, will travel, lost pen. Here's pen. The Holy Land kind of looks like an inverted sea. Okay? This is Egypt down here. It's got the Nile. This is Israel right here. It's the promised land. And then you've got the Tigris and the Euphrates that are these rivers that dump out over here into the Red Sea. Uh, not the Red Sea, the, uh, uh, the Gulf. This is Saudi Arabia and this is the Red Sea. All right, you with me? Sort of? Not really. This is Turkey. This is Egypt. This is Saudi Arabia today. This is uh, Iraq and Iran up here. But these are the Tigris and the Euphrates. Ur is down here. So Abraham gets called from Ur and he goes up to Haran up here. And then from Haran, it's called and sent down toward the promised land. And it's in the promised land where God says, Okay, I'm going to give this to your you and your offspring. It's going to be yours. And your offspring will outnumber the, the stars in the sky. It's going to be theirs forever. The only problem with this is Abraham doesn't have any offspring. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. And as a barren woman who doesn't have any offspring, it makes it really tough to believe the promise. But Abraham believes the promise nonetheless. And so we have this. And we have the God's promise to him. And it's a promise that's twofold. It's a promise of the land. But even beyond the land, it's a promise... Of offspring. That through the offspring of Abraham will come one who will bless all the nations. Will come one who will bless the earth. Will come one who is the savior, the redeemer. The one who sets aright all that was associated with the fall of Adam and Eve. And the promises through Abraham and through his offspring. Now, if I'm Stephen and I'm giving this defense... I don't, Stephen, I'm, as a lawyer, I'm appreciative of the fact Stephen doesn't start with Moses. He says, don't tell me I'm crossing Moses. Go back before Moses. Don't tell me I'm crossing this holy place. God made his call in Ur. God made his call in Haran. God made his call. He made the promise in the promised land. But the call came in different places. This is no geographic God. The beauty of the temple is not that here is the one place where God will be. This is not the holy place. The holy place is where humans are relating to God. It was a holy place in Ur. It was a holy place in Haran. It's a holy place where Abraham is. Now God makes the promise, but he makes it to Abraham. And what do you find almost immediately after God makes the promise? You find interruptions. There are interruptions after interruptions after interruptions. Abraham goes there. He gets the promise in Genesis 12. And then Abraham has to go down to Egypt. He's got a whole mess down there to deal with. And then Abraham goes back. But Abraham and Lot are having problems. So Lot gets to pick his territory. And Abraham is still looking for his offspring. But instead of having offspring and inheriting the land, Abraham's got to go rescue Lot. But in the midst of all of these interruptions, God's story is being unfolded. Abraham rescues Lot, and who does he meet as a result? Melchizedek. And Abraham worships Melchizedek. King of righteousness is what Melchizedek's name means. And to those people who are hearing Stephen speak, they're speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. Scholars differ over the two. But in either one, they understood them both. So they understand as Peter's... I mean, as as Stephen's saying these things, Stephen's talking about Melchizedek and you cannot understand the original language without appreciating the fact that this is the king of Salem, Shalom, the king of peace who is a king of righteousness, before whom Abraham tithes and gives 10% of all of his his bounty, Who, who breaks bread and has wine with Abraham, the elements of the Eucharist. But the promise is still not fulfilled. The promise is still waiting. God renews the covenant with Abraham, doesn't want Abraham to forget the promises there. But there are still no children. So Abraham decides that God's story needs to be Abraham's story. And Abraham and Sarah figure he'll just have relations with Hagar and get offspring that way. They believe God's promise. They just figure God needs help. And they confuse the plans of man with the plans of God. But God's story was bigger. God's story involves Sarah having a child at an age far beyond it. So Stephen starts and he goes back to Abraham and he explains all of this stuff and we had a chance to read it through the Genesis passage. We get to Genesis 26. We read about Isaac. We get to Genesis 41 through 50, or 34 through 36. Still more delays. They've got Dinah is defiled. And so, two of of the sons, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, they have to go and, and, uh, well, they have to go. They went and wound up destroying an entire village and creating quite a headache and a fuss. And you read about the sin and you read about the trouble and you read, and you're just sitting there on the edge of your seat saying, okay, where's the promise going to be delivered? When's God coming through with this? And Stephen's telling the story. And he's walking through it. And you read about Jacob. Now Jacob's Abraham's grandson. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the grandson, he's goofy. And a little bit twisted. Morally He pretends to be his brother to try and grab his brother's blessings. He tricks, lies, deceives his father for money and position. He double deals his brother. His name itself is an echo of the, the Hebrew phrase for someone who's a trickster or a deceiver. And in the irony of God's plan, Jacob goes off. He's kind of on the run from dear old dad who's pretty ticked off and definitely from big brother who's older than he is by all of a few minutes but is much tougher. I mean, big brother's the one out killing the animals. Little brother's the one playing dress up in the goat clothes. So Jacob goes off and the trickster goes off and he finds the woman of his dreams, Rachel. And his father-in-law tricks him. He finds out taking off all the veils after they got married that Rachel is Leah, the older sister who nobody could marry off because nobody wanted her. Taking off the veils for the honeymoon. It's like, oh... Goes back to his father in law and says, You tricked me. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be in on that conversation? Father in law says, Ah, I figured you'd know that the oldest daughter's got to get married first. You want the younger one? Give me seven more years of labor. And then the father, in this delightful, frugal sense, says, and we'll just do the wedding now with the promise you'll give me the seven more years because we've already paid for the wedding once. We might as well, while we've got everybody here, get it done again. So what a day. He got two wives. What a time. It may have taken a couple of days. But Anyway, there are all of these interruptions. Man doing such goofy, goofy things. And yet the hand of God and the story of God is still being woven together in a tapestry that nobody could have ever conceived of. And Jacob, the trickster, learns his lessons. He's been gone 14 years, but coming back, he tells his house, which means his wives and and their kids, he says, get away, throw away the idols. No more idols. Idols were these little clay figurines that they'd carry around and pray to. Throw them away. Because we're going to worship the God of my father and grandfather. We're going to worship God. And God, Yahweh God says, yes, Jacob, and you're the one, I've told you you're the one, and I'm changing your name. You're not the trickster anymore. Now your name is going to be Israel. And the Israelites as a name are born. And the twelve sons of Jacob become the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, they don't get along real good. There's a little sibling rivalry going on. And some of these interruptions are long and some of these interruptions are short as God's plans are being interrupted. But Stephen goes into a little bit more detail or at least the detail is provided to us a little bit more about Joseph. Now, here's Joseph. Joseph gets sold off by his brothers because they think he is an arrogant, spoiled little brat that they just detest. And at first, some of them want to kill him. But a few of his nicer brothers say, no, let's don't kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. And he finds himself in Egypt, and he finds himself uh, 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 working for Potiphar. When Potiphar's wife decides to seduce him, Now, what's the godly thing to do? In the words of Nancy Reagan, just say no. It's Memorial Day. I figured I'd throw in the Reagans. Joseph does the godly, noble thing. He says no. At which point, we quoted Nancy Reagan, is it Shakespeare who said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? Shakespeare may have said it, but Joseph experienced it. When Joseph will not respond to the advances of the promiscuous wife, she tries to force him to respond. She grabs him by his toga or cloak. I guess it wouldn't be a toga, that's Roman. His cloak. And bless his heart, he flees immorality as... Paul writes later. Leaving his cloak in her hand. Which Potiphar's wife then uses to show Potiphar and say, look at what this slave you brought into the house has done. He tried to seduce me. He tried to rape me. He tried to forcibly take me. And I fought him off. But I kept his cloak. Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. we I mean, where's God's hand in this? But God's story is bigger. Joseph is in prison. God's still working out His promises. Joseph's in prison. And what's he doing in prison? He's interpreting the dreams for uh, the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh. And they get out. And, And the dreams come true. And so the cupbearer and, and, and Pharaoh, him, he gets bad dreams. And nobody can interpret Pharaoh's bad dreams. So the cupbearer and the baker say, hey, you know what? When we were in jail, there's this guy named Joseph there. He's really good at interpreting dreams. Man, he nailed ours. Well, one of them hadn't been nailed yet because one of them was that he would die and he hadn't died yet. But he will nail that one too. So anyway, Pharaoh says, all right, I want to meet this guy. Joseph gets pulled out of prison. Now, we can sit here as humans and say, wow, this is the most bizarre set of coincidences we have ever seen. Or we can recognize that the story of God is so vast and big, He's moving pawns that we didn't even have on the chessboard. And and so Joseph comes and Joseph... Interprets Pharaoh's dreams and Pharaoh sees the wisdom in it, and Pharaoh sets Joseph up as the vizier, as the the, the the man who's going to help run the country to get things ready for an oncoming famine. And so for seven years, as the, the bounty is there in the land, Joseph sets aside a certain amount to make it through the years of famine. And then the years of famine come in, and Joseph is doling it out. Well, the famine hits the whole area. So guess who's out of food? Dad? Brothers? Mom? I don't know what you call Leah. She's not a stepmom. If guy's got two wives, what's the mom to the kids that didn't go from that mom? Called Aunt? Auntie mom? Anti-mom, anti-mom. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but you know they don't have anything to eat. So what are they going to do? Hey, we hear there's food in Egypt. So the dad sends the brothers down to Egypt, not the baby Benjamin. Dad already lost one baby. He thinks Joseph's dead. So they go down. Well, what happens? Joseph saves the whole family. The brothers don't even realize it's Joseph at first. He's got them scared to death. The way it unfolds is high drama. It's really great read. And, and, and finally there's this unveiling where Joseph says, Hey guys, it's me. As his brothers think that their life's going to be forfeit because they think that someone framed them for stealing the master's cup. And they think that, that, uh, Benjamin is going to have to stay behind. And it's, it's just, I don't, won't go into all of it. It's not the point of the story. But, but all of this is just one huge interruption. And all of a sudden, you've got the, the, the whole nation of Israel in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. And 400 years later, you get Moses. God's story is always bigger. This isn't me speaking out against Moses. Brothers and fathers. Our relationship goes much deeper than Moses. Centuries before Moses. And that's the point that Stephen starts in his response. Now, as we roll through the response, I want us to also note this constantly woven into Stephen's story is this theme that God wins over man's sin I did not mean that to rhyme now that I realize it does I feel pretty good about it God wins over man's sins I should have done sins plural anyway you get the idea God wins over man's sin and that's being woven throughout this whole story the sin of Jacob the sin of Abraham of Isaac of Jacob you know, Isaac was no dandy father to his boys. He's not without sin. All of them, the brothers. You get to that story in in uh, uh, Genesis where the brothers have sold Joseph. And Joseph, you know, everything, they're living on eggshells together until dad dies. And when dad dies, all of a sudden there's panic, like, okay, Joseph's been nice to us while dad was alive. Look at Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, okay, it's really possible that Joseph's going to hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. <laughs> they didn't even go themselves. You know, they didn't want to they won't catch Joseph in a rage moment. They sent a message to Joseph saying, "Uh Dad gave us this command before he died. Dad told us to say to you, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you." So, in honor of Dear dead dad, Would you please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father? Boy, they're playing the religion card. They're playing the family card. They're playing the emotional card. They really are working on it. Joseph weeps when they spoke to him. I'm sure he saw the transparency of their lie. There's no indication that the dad said any of that. Joseph weeps. His brothers came at that point. They fell down before him. They said, Behold, we're your servants. Joseph said to them, Don't fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I'll provide for you and I'll provide for your children. And he comforts them and speaks kindly to them. The sin of man, God works in the midst of it. He works through it. It's not God's will for the sin to happen. God is not an evil God. God's not out there pushing man to sin. But this is part of God's story being so big. God's story allows man the free choice for man to make actions and take actions that are wrong and sinful and through it all, God still weaves the story into fulfillment of the promises of God. God wins over man's sin. And... Stephen explains it. In Acts 7, Stephen enters this and he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. Now you see, everybody on the Sanhedrin, just like Paul, are able to identify which tribe they came from. Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. You've got the priest of the Levitical priesthood from the tribe of Levi. They're able to identify which tribe they're from, Those are the patriarchs. Those are the fathers. And those are the ones who in jealousy sold out Joseph. And so as you walk through that story, you see the sin of Esau and God works through it. You see the sin of Jacob and God works through it. You see the sin of Potiphar's wife and God works through it. You see the sin of of the famine to the extent that's a result of the fall. And the world under a curse. And God works through it. God consistently wins over man's sin. And Stephen makes that point to people who are going to sit in judgment over Stephen. And some of this I wonder how much Stephen was really saying to to convince the people. And I wonder how much of this was God at work Unfolding to Stephen before his own mind and his own eyes. The victory that God will work for Stephen. Because ultimately Stephen is going to be stoned. And Stephen being stoned. Knows and is confident that God will win a bigger story. Than the sin of the people that are stoning Stephen. I mean, Stephen, I'm sure, never had a glimpse of the fact that Paul is there holding the cloak of those doing the stoning. And that this whole process is going to be one where Paul, you know, if Paul's there holding the cloak for the stoning, Paul should have been a witness for the trial as well. Does Stephen have a clue who Paul will become as he's saying these things to Paul and others? No, maybe a little bit, but at least Stephen knows God is in control and God will win over man's sin. Last, this phrase that Stephen spoke out against this holy place as they're assembled together in the courts of the temple. This holy place. Is this holy place the temple? Is this holy place Jerusalem? Is this holy place Israel, the promised land? The point that Stephen makes, and that's woven throughout this story, is that it's the presence of God that makes the place holy. There's not magic. To that temple site. There's not magic to Jerusalem. There's not magic. To Israel. Remember how the story started. As it was told by Stephen. God came to Abraham. In Ur. There's a holy place. God called Abraham. Out of Haran. There's a holy place. God was with Abraham. In Egypt with the people, with the children of of Isaac, Jacob and all of his grandchildren, in Egypt for 400 years. It's God that makes the place holy. And as Stephen tells the story and he gets to Moses, he makes this point really clear. Moses kills an Egyptian. And as Stephen tells the story, he says that Moses supposed that his brothers, the Jews, the the, excuse me, the Israelites, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Moses sees an Egyptian whipping and and beating an Israelite. And Moses rises up in the defense of that Israelite and actually kills the Egyptian. And Moses is thinking that his brothers would understand that he, he sees his brothers oppressed, Moses knows the oppression is there. The whole way Moses got in Pharaoh's household was because God was was, uh, protecting him in the midst of Pharaoh killing a bunch of children. This doesn't go unnoticed by Moses. He doesn't have blinders on. And Moses comes to the rescue of one of his brothers, maybe one of many that were beaten by this guy regularly, And Moses is thinking that his brothers are going to really be rejoicing. Hey, Moses saved us. And instead, his brothers serve him up. Call him a murderer. Want to know if they should turn Moses in. And Moses flees. Now, as this story is being told by Stephen, speaking out against Moses, no. Speaking out against this holy place? No. Stephen's making a point though. Moses tried to save his brothers but couldn't. It was never Moses. You go back and read the story in Exodus. God saved the people. Not Moses. Moses tried to save them by his own hand and winds up fleeing. And when he flees, he encounters God, not in Jerusalem. Not in a beautiful temple court. Moses encounters God in front of a burning bush. And God makes even a bush holy. He says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. See, it's, it's God who saves and it's God who makes something holy. And as for the temple, you can look at the temple as this huge structure. But the same people who are indicting Stephen are indicting him for what Stephen supposedly is saying against Moses. Moses didn't build the temple, but Moses did build a tabernacle or have it built. A tent with the appropriate places that the temple was modeled after. It had a courtyard. It had a place for sacrifice. It had a holy. It had a holy of holies. And there's some beauty in how this is explained. If we read the way way that Stephen... I've got all these names in my brain and I'm going to start calling Jonah Noah or something. Um, If we read the way Stephen explains it, Stephen says it uh, 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 like this. He says, Our fathers... Oops, we're in Acts 7. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Moses was told to make the temple exactly the way God specified. And God gave very explicit instructions. And if we read through the Bible, and if we read the contextual passage we added out of Hebrews chapter 9, you read why God was so explicit. The temple didn't just happen to have a court. The temple didn't just happen to have a holy of holies. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand, the table, bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant Covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing ritual duties. Into the second, Only the high priest goes, only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. You want to say, this is Stephen talking now, you want to say you're holding it against me, that I spoke out against the temple and said Jesus would destroy the temple. Do you not understand that it was built in a temporary fashion exactly because God told them to build it that way? And just because we now have it made in stone makes it no less temporary. There will come a time where not, it's not one high priest who goes in with blood to atone for the sins of the people. And that's been the message from the beginning. Jesus doesn't speak out against Moses. Jesus doesn't destroy Moses. And Jesus doesn't simply destroy a temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. He's the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus is what it's all about. So, within the framework of that, we will continue next week looking at this. But this response is, God... Makes this place holy. If I'm speaking out for God, I'm not speaking out against anything. Points for home. Number one, God's story is always bigger. I don't know what all you got going in your life. I don't know what all's happening right now. You are, and I am, An important part of God's story. So this should not denigrate or or reduce or or minimize our role in God's story. But God's story is much bigger than we see. So I am just decided I'm going to sit with wide eyes, wide open, in amazement, and watch the Lord's story unfold. I want to live in the the will of God, but I'm going to pray that Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and just watch as God's story unfolds. Point for home number two. God wins over man's sin. I've asked you this before, but maybe you've changed your mind, so I want to ask you again. Um, Raise your hand if you have sinned. Okay, Jesus is still not in here. God wins. He wins over your sin and he wins over mine. Now I want to tell you something else, but it's got a question as well. How many of you have ever been hurt because of the sin of someone else? Raise your hand. We're in common company here. And I have news for you. God wins over man's sin. Please understand, that does not mean God is happy with the sin. He dies for it. The sin grieves Him. Jesus, looking at a little child, said, If someone sins against this child, it's better that a huge, massive millstone, those weigh a few thousand pounds and are bigger than I am, it's better that one of those get tied around that person's neck and they get thrown into the sea. God cares intensely and God grieves and God hurts when bad things happen. This is not a God who is the author of evil. This is the God, though, who can trump evil. This is the God who can bring redemption in the face of of pain, who can bring healing. The the healing may leave a scar, but that scar becomes evidence of the hand of God working in your life and mine. God wins over man's sin, our own individually and the sin of others against us. Last point for home. God makes this place holy. Holy. The holiest place you will ever encounter God is wherever you encounter God. And the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus destroying the temple is the clarity that it gives us that we approach God in Jesus' name and we commune with God anywhere time, Because he makes those places holy. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much. For this grand story. And I rejoice and look forward to the day in eternity. Where I can see even more fully. How we fit into this whole story you've got going. But For now, Lord, with limited vision. We just come before you saying thank you for, for loving us, for calling us, for putting us into your story, for making us uh, uh, important parts to your story. Would you please uh, confirm within each one, hearing this prayer, your hand and touch on their life. Not only dealing with their own sin, but, but handling and, and healing from the sins of others with the promise and assurance that you draw them into a holy relationship and you work your story out through us. We love you and long to be more like Jesus. In whom we pray, amen. Amen.